Hello, you're welcome to the Change Africa podcast. This is where we have up close and personal conversations with the change leaders who are the world's um, transformation. And today we have a very special guest who I've been trying to have on the podcast for a while. But um, thankfully, we do have um, Adeje K. Babintanashai with us. And we're going to explore her life from activism, from being a renowned international lawyer and her current um, projects in mentoring young people. Um, so I'll do a quick um, bio that I can see on Adjk's um, LinkedIn, which says that she is an international law expert with expensive, extensive experience in legal advisory services on varied issues from international law, justice and policy, and extensive experience in international organizations like the World Bank, where she was um, until last year, the International Court of Justice, and the International Criminal Court. But I will leave um, the rest of the bio for Adejike so that she tells us all about herself. Adejike, you're welcome to the Change Africa podcast. Hey, I am so happy. So I'm just going to do like a little quick cheers. I don't know where your drink is. Um, yeah, you should have told cheers. me about that. Yeah, cheers too. I know, we should have had it because like I, like I mentioned earlier, we've been trying to do this since forever. So I'm really glad that we're finally able to do it. I'm glad that the gods of the internet, you know, showered favor upon us and everything is working out. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, it's always interesting when people describe you and then say oh renowned this and now you're like really oh, okay uh sure i'll take it um but thank you i love um i'm excited to be here i love what you're doing with this podcast and so yeah happy to share my story if there's any way it inspires anybody out there that would be an honor yeah i mean i would like to take a reflective um drawback on what you just said if your eight-year-old self met you now what would they think about, say, all the things you've accomplished? I mean, recently, Adjk got her PhD from John Hopkins and um, a very esteemed university and doing a very esteemed PhD as well. What would your eight-year-old self say? So I think my eight-year-old self would have two reactions. On the one hand, she would be very impressed. She'd be like, what? We did this? We went where? What? What? Yes, for sure. At the same time, I think she'll be rather disappointed because she had some dreams for us that we have not yet accomplished, right? So according to my eight-year-old self, at 25, which for her was very old, I would have done a whole bunch of things, and that hasn't happened yet. So I think she will be like, okay, girl, get get your act together <laughs> and work at those things. But she would still be happy and impressed. I mean, there are a couple of things that, to be honest, when I look back on my life, I'm just like, wow, thank God. You know, because I never even imagined it for myself. It wasn't stuff that I imagined, not because I thought that I couldn't accomplish it, but it just wasn't on my radar, you know. And so to have been able to do certain things and achieve certain things, it's still like, oh, wow, that actually happened. I'm grateful. So, yeah. 
Yeah, so what kind of exposure would an eight-year-old girl have for them to, you know, imagine those possibilities that seemingly, I mean, according to the things that you've achieved, seemingly underachieving? <laughs> let me tell you, let me tell you, listen, man, you talk about the power of dreams and why we should instill in our children and the youth, like, just this dreaming is free. I'll just exactly. say that, right? Nobody, nobody can steal your dreams. So you, when you go to bed at night and you're like falling asleep and you spend some time just dreaming like, oh, what will my life be? So that's what that eight-year-old used to do, right? So when I was younger, I remember, and even younger than eight, I remember just before going to bed, I would see myself as this entrepreneur. I don't even, not like I knew what entrepreneur meant. I did not know. All I knew was that, I had multiple businesses everywhere. I had a PA who was always, for whatever reason, was always running after me to sign things. I don't, it makes no sense, but, but I always had someone wanting my signature for something. And, um, and I was just like involved in many different things. And so where I think the disappointment, right, for my eight year old self would be, would be like, whoa, you spent almost 20 years in one career. Like, what's wrong with you? Why <laughs> Why don't you have people chasing after you for your signature? Why don't you have autographs here and there? Um, so I think that's where she'll be disappointed. But at the same time, once I have a chance to sit down and talk to her and let her know just what we've overcome, I think she'll be impressed. Yeah, that, that's a very beautiful way to start a conversation. But again, lastly on that, um, does that mean that, for example, you would want to um, take a, a care from law um, in the future? Well, so I have always believed that we are more than one thing, mm -hmm. right? So to me, it wouldn't be a curve. I'm going to borrow from Serena Williams when she talked about, you know, people were framing her leaving tennis as retirement and she talked about an evolution. And so I think we're constantly evolving. When we limit ourselves to one thing or like the thing that we do, our career to define our identity, then we are actually doing ourselves an injustice and we're not living fully. So one of my favorite, um, my motto actually that I keep repeating to myself is that I want to live the length and breadth of my life. So that means that by the grace of God, I want to live everything that I'm supposed to live, right? And both in terms of length, but in terms of just all the different experiences. And whether that's in law, making an impact in law, making an impact in music, making an impact through activism, you know, there's a season for everything. And so I think that it wouldn't be a curve away from it um, because nothing can take away what I've done. But it will just be a continued expansion and a continued growth. And I think that's what we we all should keep aiming to achieve, and that is what the eight-year-old me knew, right? So that's a funny thing. As kids, we know who we are, but society conditions us and, you know, circumstances condition us to then say, oh, well, I have to keep doing this. I have to do this job and retire in this job. This is what's expected. But if that young girl knew that she could be multiple things so that people are constantly running after her for her signature, um, <laughs> then... That is what I should continue to aspire to do. That's a very beautiful way to put it. And um, I guess we'll talk later about your mentorship project and 
without even knowing about it, I think that the network um, kind of, you know, seeps into this narrative that you're just building here so that I, people would um, go back to those eight-year-old selves and, you know, rekindle those imaginations and possibilities that we did have then because it seems like that is what growth um, ironically does that to you instead of your growth to uh, match up to new ambitions and uh, imaginations we tend to recoil from our earlier you know grand visions of the world it's almost like a reality check they used to they, they say but that means that a reality check is that the, the, you could not achieve or the possibilities that you thought were were were, were um, up for the taking is no more and i think that um, as we go on later in this conversation, we can explore how um, the mentorship network you're working on now can help young people, especially, be able to um, connect to those grand ambitions and pursue them, even in the difficulties of um, adulthood and old age. But I would like to start from, and now I've said that a couple of times, but I'd like to talk about your 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 um, growing up in Nigeria. And that, and how that shaped your perspective of the world and possibly how that, um, um, encouraged you to pursue a career in law. And, um, I know you, again, um, you evolved, um, from an earlier, um, ambition of a, if a career, if you can take us through, but also take us through why you eventually settled on law, the, 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 the environment of a, um, of at the time a militant um, Nigeria and what those um, imagery of the Nigeria you grew up in um, kind of influence you to to become the person you are today. Thank you. Um, so let's see. So I was born in Nigeria in Lagos and was there until I was ten, and then from ten to fifteen was in Tanzania where I did my high school. And then 15 till, I guess, 17 and a half or thereabouts, maybe 17, 18, I think, but maybe more 17, I can't remember. Um, I then went to the UK to do my undergrad in law. So then let's look back then at that defining period from zero to 10, if we could say it like that. Um, as you mentioned, I grew up under military rule. And so, you know, you would encounter different instances of injustice um, you'd encounter, and not directly as an, as an observer. And so, but that was enough, I would say, to shape me, to see that, well, hmm, this doesn't seem fair, because as a, as a kid, you don't really know anything apart from just that instinctive feeling that this isn't fair, like, it's not fair that this person is treated like that, or that, you know, um, there's a story that is forever entrenched in my mind and I remember one night um, there was a woman who was being dragged across the street by two soldiers and uh, there were all these adults right and some kids myself included standing we're just watching and the woman is like crying and begging and pleading she was being dragged from a market to the nearby uh, barracks and it turned out, and what the 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 uh, one of the soldiers was saying, like he like apparently the woman was rude to him, um, was rude to them, and so they were basically teaching her a lesson. And so it just seemed like really bizarre because first of all the adults outnumbered the soldiers, but of course everybody was afraid, 
right? Because the soldiers had guns and the soldiers carried this air of authority and it was like, well, there's nothing we can do. Um, but it's just that sense of even if this woman was rude to this person, should she be beaten and dragged across the street like that? Uh, so that's like one example of something I saw where I perceived it as an abuse of power, but as a civilian and definitely as a child, there was nothing I could do. And then, of course, when I lived in Tanzania, um, this was around the time of the uh, Rwandan genocide. And I remember at school being told, hey, we should bring some clothes so we can help the children who were whose families were fleeing from Rwanda. Now, of course, again, as a child, it's not like I fully un understood what genocide was, but it was very clear that we had to do whatever we could to help. So I'd always been, um, I found myself in situations where, you know, I witnessed things that I would say shaped my mind to see like, you know, there's injustice in this world. And I come from a family where we don't just take injustice lying down. So it's like, well, whatever you can do, you do. So in a way, I'll say that that shaped me to be an activist. Now, being an activist doesn't actually mean that you have to be a lawyer to be an activist, right? You could be an activist through anything. Uh, so I did not actually start off thinking, I want to use law to address activism. Um, I actually wanted to be a, a, a director. I wanted to be in theater. I wanted to be in film. Um, and I loved doing drama. I loved doing all of those things. But, you know, you are from Ghana. I'm from Nigeria. I don't think I need to tell you about African parents. Um, <laughs> who would let you know, like, that is really lovely, but here are your options. Um, <laughs> and I say this with a smile because, of course, I, I, I feel blessed with the parents that I have. And um, and it's not as if, you know, I think it's at the end of the day, it's always like the parents are coming from a place of what they think would be in your best interest. Uh, so I remember thinking, you know what, I'll be a doctor. But then I was afraid of blood. So that didn't make sense. Um, and then, bizarrely, I watched the O.J. Simpson trial. And that, I was just mesmerized by Johnny Cochran. If the glove don't fit, you must acquit. This is, this is like, you know, I think 14, 15 year old me or, or somewhere between 13 and 14, I can't remember. And so, I was just mesmerized. I was like, all right, if, if I have to do one of these options that I'm being told that I have, I can do law. Um, but again, I'll be honest that my plan was I was going to practice law for five years. And then I was going to be like, thank you very much, parents. Here is your degree. Hope you enjoy it. <laughs> and I'm off <laughs> to the theater to do something else. Um, but when I was doing my master's degree, I discovered International Protection of Human Rights. That was a course that I took. And I was blown away because it was something that just reinforced everything that I had felt growing up about the injustices and so on and what we can do about it. And so I was like, all right, if, if there's any law that I can see myself doing long term, it's this. And so that's why, you know, almost 20 years post LLM, um, I've been doing public international law, human rights, international criminal law, um, addressing issues of inequalities, both within international organizations and um, in the community and society. Yeah, so would you say that um, 
At the time you started venturing into public international law, the field was still nascent. And would you like to talk about um, what's different um, in the field at the time and what has, how much has it grown? And obviously you contributing to some of the landmark um, literature that, you know, it's been, I guess, used um, in the field now. How has that experience and that evolution looked like? Thank you for that compliment. Um, so I wouldn't say it was nascent because, you know, like public international law goes way, way back. And, you know, people are talking about Grotius and whoever, whoever, all these people who are um, now very dead. So it's, it's you know, it's it's been there. Um, one of the organizations I worked at, um, the International Court of Justice, started with a League of Nations and the Permanent Court of International Justice. So, so it's been around. But what I would say, um, I would say a huge shift, of course, is seeing more and more people that look like me um, in positions of prominence um, and, you know, not being in, no longer being in situations where you're just the only one. Um, and so it's always very inspiring. Like, for example, seeing Fatou Ben Souda being the, um, the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. Um, and so, so I would say that th that, that is a change. Um, I would say another change in the way international law is being shaped is an increase in recognition of the voices from other places. So international law has been dominated by Western concepts of law, which are not universal. Um, and people have been complaining about this long before I was even born. But I think more and more, because of the changes we're seeing in society, more and more voices of those who are, um, um, I would say, different from the, the, what, what the norm is, are being heard. And we are creating spaces. We're no longer asking to be sitting at the table. We're saying, you know what, keep your table. We're going to make our own table um, <laughs> and make it work. And then also just that idea. So, for example, I co-chaired um, one of the, um, the, the international, uh, what do you call it, the International Conference of the American Society of International Law. And that was in 2000 and, yeah, in 2020, actually. Um, because I remember that COVID almost jacked up our plans, right? And it was supposed to be in person and COVID hit. And I was just like, oh no, why is it the one that I organized that is, you know, nobody's going to come and you're so sad about it. But it turned out to be the biggest. It was just amazing. It turned out to be the biggest ASOL conference ever. And that was amazing. And you just, you know, because people were able to participate and it turned out to be the one where we had a lot of geographical diversity because previously, you know, it was hosted in Washington, D.C. People had to fly into D.C. They're not able to attend, you know, get visas, right? Right, like get visas, flight. Those are things that, again, these institutions that have been there since centuries, they're not catered. Right. And it's not necessarily that there's a conscious racism, but it's just the reality that they are tailored towards a certain um, demographic. Right. And a certain audience. And so it's like if you happen to be in a place where you have a visa or you happen to be in the U.S., yeah, come, you're welcome. But 
this really forced us to think outside of the box and say, you know what, we're going to make it online. You know what, we're going to make it accessible. And so it just gave me so much joy. And then also being one of the co-chairs, an important thing for me was increasing the voices, again, like I said, people who look like me, so people of color. So I wasn't going to tolerate any panel that was just a all-white male panel, right? That just wasn't going to happen on my watch. So back to your question, what I'm seeing changing is that more and more people are being intentional about creating those spaces where the voices of people of color are heard so as to shape the development of international law, human rights, and so on. Yeah. So do you like us, um, would you like to tell us about this book um, that I can't pronounce the name of <laughs> because it has a long title um, <laughs> um, that you were involved in um, that I, I didn't know the usefulness, but from what I have read, uh, International Criminal Investigations Law and Practice is a very important book in the field. So can you talk about that and how you came around um, contributing in the, in the, in, in the writing and the editing of this book, if I'm correct? Right, yeah. So um, this book, I had the idea for this book, I believe it was 2011. And I reached out to two of my really, really cool friends, and we worked to, we all worked as investigators at the International Criminal Court um, at some point in our lives. And I was like, you know what? I have observed that when people talk about international criminal law, they really are focusing mainly just on the law, or if they extend in any way, they're focusing on prosecutions. But they don't really think about the importance, because you can't have a case without investigations, right? You can't go to court if you don't have a case file. You can't do anything. So who are the people gathering that information? What are the rules? What are the laws? What are we supposed to be practicing? And I realized that there was a gap. And I thought rather than waiting for somebody else to fill that gap, I can fill the gap. And, um, and sometimes like, you know, you, you think, all right, I can do this, but who are the, who are the best people to bring with me to do this? Because, you know, the world, like, we're not an island. We're not out there. It's not all about, oh, the glory of one person. So it's like, who are the best people that I can bring together to help me achieve this? And so I reached out to, like I mentioned, two of my really good friends, Akinbola Hoadiniro, who's Nigerian, and Aimee Comrie, who's Canadian. And we came together and we were like, oh, we should call it the ABCs of um, <laughs> international criminal law. So basically, Adeniro, Babington Ashai, and Comrie, the ABC. So we, we called ourselves like the dream team um, and put this together. And then we thought, all right, now we're going to um, invite people because we're co-editors and co-authors. So let's invite people to contribute. And so again, we're looking at people with diverse experiences, ensuring, of course, um, that we're hearing diverse voices. And so, of course, we absolutely had to have um, um, Charles Phillips, who was one of the pioneers at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. He dealt with one of the first cases there addressing genocide. And as a Nigerian, and so, you know, we're proud. And we want to be like, let's hear from, you know, our African brothers and African sisters who are pioneers. Because, again, back to the point of, at the time that this book, the idea for this book was born, who were the people we were hearing from? We were not hearing from really everybody 
right? I want to say everybody, like the diverse nature of people who are involved in making international criminal law work. And so it was so important to us then to, to get his perspectives. It was so important to us to get the perspectives of those who have worked with interpreters, right? It was so important for us to get the perspective of the financial investigators and so on and to put it together. And even though I had the, the idea way back in 2011, like I said, um, I think it was only in 2018 <laughs> that the book came together. So sometimes you can have an idea, you can have a little seed and it takes a while to grow. Um, and it was certainly a labor of love, but yeah, I'm so happy that it's out there and it's, you know, it's making its mark and no one can take that away from us. Yeah. So what do you think has been the impact post-publishing? Well, first of all, it's the fact that we have filled that gap, right? So like I said, there is that gap where there wasn't really an understanding of what are the laws, the practices, and the rules, and the experiences of people who have been investigators and built cases, um, or people who worked with investigators, and what are the important things to look out for when you are conducting such investigations. So that's number one, it filled that gap, that that gap in the scholarship, but also that gap as a tool for practitioners. And then I would say, um, secondly, the other impact too is just that I love the fact, you know, like you would, we would hear from people who maybe hadn't had the chance to be published elsewhere and just be like how excited they were um, to be able to be published in this book. Um, and also just on a personal note, for instance, one of the people who, contributed to the book was my um, supervisor, Simo Vatanen from Finland, my former supervisor when I was an intern at the uh, International Criminal Court. And it was like a whole, you know, circle. Like I could just see his pride when we had the lunch at the Peace Palace in The Hague. And he was just so proud. And I was just so happy that he was there. I was like, I can't believe it. Like, you know, here I was, this little... I don't know, how old was I, 21 year old, whatever I was, <laughs> you know, as an intern. And now many years later, he's writing in my book. So it's just that sense, again, for me, it reinforces just how much we are a piece of each other, right? And just the fact that we can help each other in different ways. Um, and also, you know, I don't think I... I know the full impact of this book yet, to be honest. I, I think, again, with more use, more recognition and so on. But the other thing, too, that blew me away, I remember doing a fellowship, um, this was in 2019, doing a fellowship at Harvard. Uh -huh, yeah. Right. And I went into the library because I'm a geek, and I was looking for something, and then I saw the book there. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? My book is at Harvard. <laughs> so, so it was a really humbling moment, but a moment of joy just to know that something that we have worked so hard on is accessible in different places. Um, so in as much as I'm celebrating that it's at Harvard, I'm also celebrating the fact that um, Bettina Ambach, who is uh, the head of the YMO Foundation that I've done a lot of capacity building training with, she bought several copies of the book to distribute and make available to the Nigerian military, for instance, right? So it's so important to me that this book is available everywhere and it's used um, everywhere. 
That is great. Um, we hope that you write more books. So, as someone <laughs> as someone who's worked in, you know, and I would say at the apex of um, international criminal justice at the ICC and the ICJ, what what would you say um, was your most special moment and perhaps most proud accomplishments in working in both um, institutions? So I would say that I think that the accomplishments, I'm grateful for all accomplishments, right? Um, and having worked at those places, again, those are places that I dreamt of, but I didn't even know that it was possible for me to get there. And so having gotten there, you're like, wow, I got here. But what gives me the most joy, to be honest, is when I remember working with the victims and witnesses that I would work with. And just people, just the honor of being able to sit with those who've experienced some of the worst things you can ever imagine and them telling me their story, right? And it's a very humbling moment, too, because in as much as we may think we are experiencing terrible things in life, the reality is if somebody had to flee their hometown, abandon their entire lives, abandon their entire dreams, watch their loved ones being witnessed, um, being killed or raped or something terrible, live in a refugee camp and still have hope for tomorrow, like, honestly, we who have not experienced that need to take that and say, you know what, as long as I have breath, I can persevere. And so it was always extremely humbling to sit down with someone who has experienced um, terrible things and for them to be able to share their story with me, to trust me with their story, right? Because as an investigator, I would go and sit with them and, like, take their story and and for them to be able to, to be you know, and try to build rapport with them. So for them to be able to be willing to open up and share their story and some of the most excruciating things that they've experienced with me, that's an honor. I don't take that for granted at all. And that is something that gives me joy, right? I would say, like, joy in the sense that I'm, I'm grateful to have been able to have done that, really. Out of everything, <laughs> I'm grateful to have been able to have done that and to have experienced that. Um, that is great, you know. Again, talking about going to work in these very prestigious places, we hear, you know, it's one of those things where you hear a lot of people say, you know, oh, there's an international criminal court. The fact is, no, many people don't even know what happens there. So my two questions is, what really happens in these two organizations? And um, can you tell us about your journey to get in there? And you want, I don't know whether it was the 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 catalyst of of an activity or um, the great work you've already um, done or if you can share some insights that people can take away if they are dreaming to um, fit those shoes that you've already, you know, worked in. Okay. Um, all right. So I'm going to try to make this not a long one, but I would start it by saying people shouldn't be trying to fill in the shoes that I've walked in or the footprints <laughs> that I've left. They should please be trying to make their own footprints and build their own yeah. shoes, right? Definitely, <laughs> definitely. But I meant it as you work in there and the institution. Right, <laughs> right. Um, so I would say, first of all, so when I did my master's in public international law 
I did, again, the geek in me. And this, I have to thank my big brother for Yemi. And he was, I was look. I was trying to decide which courses to take. And we were talking about this course. Um, I mean, giving a shout out to your brother. Who, again, shout out. Your brother um, <laughs> is, again, Yemi Babichai. Um, and he is the person who literally built up Global Shapers, which is one of the most um, influential yes. youth organizations in the world. I mean, there are like thousands of Global Shaper organizations and there are hundreds and, and even more thousands of people. Probably, I don't know. But yeah, it's a huge thing that he, you could, you could literally say he built from scratch. Um, yeah. So definitely, um, it seems that you have a lot of, um, people in your family and your siblings who are, um, really, really leaving a mark on the sands of time. So definitely you should be proud of yourself. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm very, very proud of my mother. 100% proud of all my siblings. Um, so I was saying that he, he advised me to take this course called the Law of Treaties. And I was like, really? The Law of Treaties course? Why? And I started taking it in the course. And I loved it. And that was my first exposure to the International Court of Justice. And I remember thinking, I would love to work there one day. And then I just left it. And then, of course, I took a course called International Criminal Law and learned about the Rome Statute, the International Criminal Court. And I was like, I would love to work there one day. <laughs> and then I just like left it and moved on with my life. And I came across this friend of mine, um, the one I wrote the book with, Akin Balanhard in Iran. I call him Boye. And Boye, um, we, we have this ongoing competition. So I'm just going to do like random shout outs to people because it's so good to have a circle. It's good to have people. I say, you know, make sure you have friends doing great things <laughs> because you never know. So he's yeah. actually um, the former um, attorney general of one of the states in Nigeria. Um, and so anyway, at the time, though, he was doing his master's um, in law at Harvard. And so we met while I was doing an internship there. And he ended up at the ICC before me. And I'm like, excuse me, who's green with this? <laughs> Why are you there? And I was looking for, I was applying for internships and so on. I'd already worked for almost two years, but I was still applying for internships. And he gave me this really useful piece of advice. So that's why I'm telling this whole story, because I think it's important. The moral of the story is not all the glitters is gold, right? So be strategic. So I was applying for different internships, and I was, of course, looking at the office of the prosecutor because I thought that was the sexiest unit, the sexiest office to work at. Like, that's where they're doing things. And he worked there, and it did. It was sexy. But he said, listen, why don't you apply to the office of the registry? And I'm just like, who are you, as we say back home, trying to pour sand in my Gary? I don't understand this hater you were there enjoying this sexy office, and now you're telling me to apply to the Office of the Registry? Why? But okay, fine. I applied, and I got into the Office of the Registry. I got into the Victims and Witnesses Unit, where I met my former supervisor, Simo Vatanen, um, from Finland, who ended up writing in my book many years later. But anyway, backpedal to um, 2005. So I get in, and I remember my first day, uh, I was there with other interns, and we were getting our badge. And I was asking them, like, oh, so where, which unit are you in? Oh, Office of the Prosecutor. 
Okay, and you, Office of the Prosecutor. Okay, and you, Office of the Prosecutor. I was like, oh Lord, here I am in this boring <laughs> Office of the Registry with the victims and witnesses. Long story short, I was so blessed. My six months, I like the work I did, amazing. I was involved in, you know, as an intern, being able to sit at the table and provide any form of assistance as they were trying to draft the, the rules and regulations of the Office of the Registry. Uh, because I was a lawyer, my supervisor did not look at my position as an intern and say, oh, just, you know, photocopy. No, he would actually ask my advice. And I was involved in coming, like, in preparing legal opinions and, and things like that that were actually relied upon. And I would have regular coffee or lunches with the other interns, like those that I started with. I'm going to be like, oh, how was your week? And they're like, oh, didn't really do anything. You know, just made some photocopies. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh well, you know, I kind of assisted in drafting, <laughs> you know, like, you know, whatever. So it's, it was amazing. But if, if I did not, I guess, humble myself, and I know this is going to be public, don't tell Boye I said this, because I don't want his head to get big. I am giving him credit. If, it, like, if I didn't humble myself and say, you know what, rather than going for what I thought glittered, let me apply to this other place so I can get in. And I got in. I got amazing experience working on the Victims and Witnesses Unit that was ultimately extremely valuable for when I eventually got the job in the Office of the Prosecutor as an Investigator, because I already had that background in thinking about victims and witnesses' needs. So these are things that you never know, right? And, and whatever, however people may believe in the universe or in God, like you just don't know what God is planning for you. And if you rail against it and say, no, no, I want that thing that's glittering, I want to go and be an intern in the Office of the Prosecutor, I may be telling a different story today. Exactly. Right. So, so just to say that that long story to give that um, uh, piece of advice to people who are looking at these institutions, and you know, because I, I I mentored and spoken to a lot of people who want to work there, and a lot of the times they just focus on what they think is the big thing, but it may not be the thing that would give them the experience that they need. So I think people should be driven by that, um, and not just the organization or the unit in the organization that may seem the sexiest. Again, uh, that, that is a great story uh, <laughs> on, on getting into some of these uh, great organizations. Um, I guess I will talk now about your work in, as an activist. Um, you volunteered and done so many trainings in Africa. Um, what does like what does activism really mean for you and and what does social justice mean for you i mean um, as an individual and also as a practitioner thanks so for me activism is basically using your voice um to address the injustices that you see how you use your voice differs so one person's activism may look completely different from another person right and and some people are quiet activists they do the activism from within or silently and they never get any credit for it until maybe centuries later um, or never at all. And some people are louder than others and some people are more visible than others. Some people have a platform from which to do their activism. But for me, activism is basically 
um, just not sitting down and doing nothing when in just when you see injustice. So if you can do anything, even if it's small, you may not think it's a big deal. It's still something, right? Um, and so, so there's a. I'll have to try and find this quote, but I think I can't remember her name. But she said, um, "Activism is the rent that she pays for being on this earth." And I thought that's actually quite a profound um, way to reflect on it. Like we are fortunate to be on this earth at this time, you know, to have breath in our lungs. So why not use that time to make an impact? And so for me, social justice, connecting that then to uh, social justice is addressing issues of inequality, right? Um, addressing issues where people are being treated poorly or treated badly. And again, that comes out in different ways, right? I could be on the street petitioning or I could be advising a client. I could take on a case that, you know, is, I'm looking at it from different perspectives, just to say, just to help whoever might be listening to this, to not think that activism is only one way. You can do activism in many different ways. Yeah, and um, you, you may not have succeeded and I don't know if I want to use that word, succeeded, but you, um, you're now a lawyer. You've done a lot of things in arts as well. And so I was just trying to say that you perhaps didn't go to art school, but you've still been able to harness those, um, artistic talents and more specifically into some of your passions in activism. How did that start and how do you kind of combine those um, two worlds of arts um, and, and, you know, your passion for activism and social justice and, you know, the law. Right. So I think the, a key way it has manifested in my life, at least over perhaps the last five, six years, is through this all-women social justice a cappella group that I used to sing with when I lived in Washington, D.C., called Songrise, and again, another shout out, Propagnam, everybody should go check them out, uh, songrisedc.org. And that was just an amazing experience because here we are able to use our voices to push for social change. So we would sing songs that addressed, you know, either the, the, the song themselves addressed um, instances of injustice, uh, so one of the songs in our repertoire was a song called um, Breathe Fire. And it was about the Bhopal disaster in the 80s that happened in India, um, where the factory, um, uh, basically, the, so many people even today are still dying as a result of the, the leak of this poisonous gas and everything and, and, and what happened at that time. And so many people don't even know this story. Right, because that 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 is essentially an example of capitalism at its worst. You know, we hear of situations where whether it's um, buildings where people are building our very clothes, but the buildings making our clothes, the buildings are so dilapidated, and yet there's a lot of money coming out of this industry, and they can barely fix it. I think even just a, a, a couple of months ago, there was a disaster, and people lost their lives, and pe these are people who are working there day in day out. Um, you know, for like less than a dollar a day. 
And so we would use our voices to sing um, about these instances. We'll sing about racial inequality in the United States. We sang in front of the Supreme Court. We sang at different places. And we will use our voices um, in a way that lovers of music, even if you may be from different political groups, you love music? Okay, good. Come hear us. Right? And that way you would have people thinking, you know, we had people crying in our audiences. And so you have people moved to then take action themselves. So it's sort of like that pouring out our activism into others to then become activists themselves, to call up their, you know, senator, to go online and donate or whatever it is that moves them. But that, that was an example of us using our voices in that way. And I love singing. I've been singing since I don't know how old, since I discovered that I could sing in the garage um, <laughs> at home as a kid. So so it just made sense for me to be able to use my voice in that way. So let's now talk about mentorship and um, the work that you are doing right now. Um, as an African woman who has you know shown a lot of excellence and as someone, as you said, you know, try to replicate the the, varia the variables of, you know, different voices, different faces that were initially not in the room and now creating even tables for yourself. What is the importance of having people that really cushion you on, people that you can fall onto when you are in your down moments and people who motivate you to take the steps towards greatness and how the, those kind of personal experiences influencing you into starting this new organization if you can tell us a little bit about that yeah with pleasure so i've been blessed i've honestly been so blessed with mentors in my life from my parents to um you know again my siblings and and i would just very quickly mention that mentoring doesn't always have to be top down right a lot of people think like oh i need to be mentored by somebody who is up there but you could be mentored by someone who is even younger than you, but doing the thing that you admire. Um, and so I've been mentored in so many different ways. And it's so wonderful to have people who are in your corner. Um, it's important to believe in yourself, but the reality is that there are going to be days where your belief in yourself is really low. You don't know if you can do it. And so it helps. It helps to have people who are cheering you on. And... Um, Having come from that kind of background, in a way, this is also part of me trying to give back. So I've done mentoring on my own, like mentoring other people. But the idea of this network, Conseil, is to create a network where I like to look at it as like create a network of cheerleaders where we are essentially cheering each other on. And for me, it was really important to create something where we are seeing more people who are doing amazing things who are diverse, who have diverse voices, who look different. You know, um, one of the things that concern me is coming across, whether it's, you know, articles and, and they talk about like the top leaders of whichever organization. And they're typically, you know, whether it's Caucasian men. And you're like, well, I know that there are other people who are not Caucasian men doing great things. Let's mix up the waters. Let's have more people on there. And, and you can, in a way, see, see that representation matters when you, I don't know if you're familiar with the recent debate over, and this is so silly, but the recent debate over Ariel from The Little Mermaid. Yeah, yes. Right, yeah. right. 
Yeah. And I mean, there is a video on Instagram that I saw, I think, either yesterday or this morning, where young kids were reacting to it. And the reaction was, oh, she was black. Right. She is black. Is this real? Right. So, yeah, I, I, yeah. I can understand that, that the representation yeah. that people see, especially young people see, of what is possible influences the limits of possibility in their mind. Right, exactly. And so that's why they say representation matters. And so for me, it matters that I can use Conseil as a platform to highlight people who are doing great things, number one, um, um, who are diverse and doing great things. Number two, to normalize mentoring. So it's not, it doesn't have to be something that is only within your school or within, um, your workplace or anything like that. You can be part of the network and get access to people who are doing great things in your field. You can get access to peer mentoring. Um, and also using our social media, like, so we've started and I have to give a massive shout out to Oluwatoyinviatonu. Like, this is just like shout out today. Um, so I'm giving a shout out to her because she is, um, she's, uh, she works with me and Kansei and she manages our social media and one of the, the ideas that we came up together with um, is the hashtag Women We Admire series. And we're showcasing women who are doing amazing things in their field. And a lot of the times people look at people and they say, oh, you know, Beyonce, she's there. Oh, I can't get there. Or they say, you know, Taraji P. Henson, oh, my gosh, I can't. She, they're already there. We're constantly looking at people who are already there, forgetting that it's a journey. And so through the Women We Admire series, we are trying to showcase the journey, people who are doing great things as they go through the journey, the ups and the downs and so on. So I hope to, you know, with Kansei and my prayer is that it just grows and grows, um, I hope to use that as a platform to just give people more access, right? It's about access. The, the students at Harvard who easily get, you know, the former general of XYZ to, to just turn up and speak. They're not smarter than the kids at Makerere University or University of Lagos or University in Ghana. They're not smarter than them. They just have access. And so with Kansei, we're trying to level the playing field a little bit. And that's what we're trying to do with that. So how do people get involved? How do people get involved? Okay. So we are still building this delicious, um, Let's see, what's, what's your favorite stew, by the way? Um, I know people have peanut stew, whatever. It's some um, uh, garden egg stew. Okay, so we are still making the garden egg stew. <laughs> um, and we want people to go onto our website and um, subscribe so they will be some of the first to be notified once everything is launched. Um, and so we want people to follow us. Um, I will make sure, I will make sure you get like all our social media handles. Um, so you can tag that. We want people to follow us and we want people to go on our website, www.conseil.org and subscribe. And, um, once we launch what people are going to receive or what people are going to see as being a member and it's free, right? It's completely free because again, it's access. So being a member of Conseil, they will have access to this network. They would have access to other people like them doing awesome things. So benefit from peer-to-peer -peer mentoring. They will be able to set up mentoring sessions as well. So there will be a whole lot of goodies. Um, um, uh, that's the plan. And so they should please go on the website, subscribe, and 
stay connected. Yeah, so that's Conseil. Um, we will definitely put the social media links and the website so that people who are interested um, can talk about it and they can register and uh, you know wait for updates as and when they are ready. But now I just want to focus on Africa. Um, you know, uh, the past, you know, post-COVID, a lot of countries have been through it. Um, what what do you think really in Africa's evolution? What what do you think is that big problem that Africa needs to traverse? And that is the big stumbling block. If you ask me, I would think it's leadership, and I think that's why mentorship is very important. But what do you think that problem is, and how do we, um, if you've reflected on that, how do we um, conquer that big um, big um, giant? problem in the room? That is a huge question. Um, and I think that we're constantly reflecting on it. You already hit the nail on the head with leadership. Um, but in a way, our leaders are what we allow, right? So we cannot forget that we ultimately hold the power. I, at the very beginning, I gave the story of those two soldiers dragging the women and the spectators outnumbered the soldiers. I'm just going like, to let that sit for a minute. The spectators outnumbered the soldiers, but the spectators were spectators and didn't do anything to change the injustice that they were witnessing. The masses outnumber the leaders is the bottom line. Um, and this is not only, and I, I say this because of course, like, of course, this is Change Africa podcast. So yes, we should talk about Africa, but this is a global issue. Um, where until we realize our own power, you know, I, I remember a story which I might butcher, but it's sort of like a um, a saying about this elephant, you know, one of the biggest, strongest animals in the kingdom, and it's chained. It's so used to being chained, but it doesn't even realize that it could just flick its leg and break the chain and walk away. So in the words of Bob Marley, we have to emancipate ourselves from mental slavery, the slavery that tells us that our leaders are more powerful than us. You know, um, so we have to take our election seriously. And yes, it doesn't mean that there aren't circumstances where elections are bought. Again, this is not just in Africa, this is global, right? Where there's corruption and things like that. But we do have to take um, our elections seriously so that we're electing people that really represent the values and ideals that we want to see. Um, you know, that's, that's what I will say. Uh, of course, there are many, many, many layers. At the end of the day, people are just trying to live. Um, one of the things I think about is the fact that, you know, even in, in like in Nigeria, a lot of people say, well, hey, if we just have constant electricity and water, it's okay, do whatever you want, we will figure <laughs> ourselves out. Like, people are entrepreneurial, people have that spirit, right? And so sometimes people are even just asking for the most basic thing. The barest Right, just the basic thing, like, it's okay, whatever you want to keep doing, just give us this basic thing, we will sort it out. And so, yeah, so on that level, of course, we, we need our leaders to, of course, do more than the basic, but we need that enabling environment because... I'm just like blown away at the talent on our continent, right? Just blown away. The talent, the promise, the potential, it's just amazing. Um, and so, yeah, so definitely our leaders, but also us realizing our power and um, 
and yeah, I guess another shout out then, you know, we talked about my brother and how he set up, um, um, United he set up, people. right, right, right. Yeah. But he's also set up United People Global, UPG, yeah. and that is one thing that they're trying to do, trying to change the world. Um, I guess one community at a time and helping people realize the power that they have as citizens. Yeah. Um, I think it's been a thrilling conversation. What is the last thing that you want to say um, to close the conversation that we've had today? The last thing I would say is, well, first of all, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for this podcast. I've actually listened to some of them and I've been inspired by the people that you put on. So I'm very honored to be part of that. Um, I would just say, you know, everybody just keep trying, keep trying to leave your mark. You know, um, one of the things I reflected on in preparation for this is just like, what are some of the principles and values that I have or that motivate me? And it's, Fairness, like be fair, be kind to everyone, regardless of their circumstance. Don't don't say, oh, just because somebody is a a leader, so I'm going to bow to him. But then the cleaner on the other road, on the other downside of the road, I'm not going to treat well. As we say back home in Nigeria, no condition is permanent, right? So try and be nice to everybody, um, and dream. Dream. Dreaming is free. No one can take that away from you. Your circumstances don't dictate how you dream, you know, and you just never know. Dream and sometimes you just have to dream and, and leave it. Sometimes you have to dream and work on it, but don't deny yourself that right to dream that you can have a life that is better than your circumstances because you really can and you really do deserve it. Yeah, so the dream is free. Um, that's one of my, my favorite quotes. Um, that we inspire each other um, to pursue the greatness that is in us. Um, yesterday I wrote a post on my WhatsApp and I was just talking to people about how I feel about what privilege is for. And I feel like privilege exists in so many you know, variances, but I think that the ultimate goal, I think, for privilege is that it should be shared so that whatever privilege we have, we should have it in our minds to share it. And I think coming to the podcast with all the immense knowledge you have and building a network for young people to be mentored is sharing that privilege that you have. And I think that you embody that. And so thank you again for coming to the Change Africa podcast to share your knowledge, um, to share your projects and to share your aspirations and your dreams for young people um, all over the world. And we hope that this conversation really inspires people, you know, to get that um, job at the ICJ or the ICC or the World Bank. Or wherever uh, they really or want to be. Or, or to they make to that organization, yeah, that, right? That, that so part, is, yeah, of, exactly. part of it, like, if they don't want us at their table, we're going to make our own, right? Yeah. So. yeah. As <laughs> someone who is a, um, um, a rule breaker myself, I really, you know, uh, <laughs> I am, I am, I'm always trying to, you know, start the, the next thing and do the next thing. And, and I always think that, um, the things that are available are not good enough and they need to be changed, they need to be improved on. And so definitely, um, that is for me as much as it is for everyone. But again, thank you very much. This has been the Change Africa podcast with our guest at DJK Babington Ashai and we were extremely happy to have her here. I hope she enjoyed her, her time as much as I did. 100%. Thank you so much. <laughs>